hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'd like to start with a programming update. Please be sure to visit the America Out Loud website and look for COVID-19 question and answers. Uh, Malcolm Out Loud, the uh, energetic driver of America Out Loud Talk Radio, has hosted a series of questions and answers. So those of you in the audience have emailed in a, a series of questions, and we've categorized them in terms of uh, epidemiology and of pathophysiology, of uh, prophylaxis, treatment, uh, how to handle mandates. All of these are in a series of questions and answers. They are enormously popular, so we're going to keep doing them until, uh, until we're exhausted with respect to your questions and your need to get fair information on the COVID-19 pandemic response. Everything we do is evidence-based. Everything we do is citable in the literature. So I'll uh, typically give the first author or the name of the publication so it can be found on the internet to support what we're suggesting you do. Uh, But please go to America Out Loud and look for COVID-19 questions and answers. There's been a whole series of them Uh, We've done them faithfully now for quite some time. I want to start the show and go back to September 17th, 2021. I think this is historic in terms of a regulatory action in the United States. The US FDA met with a full advisory panel and external presenters who had the opportunity to present their viewpoints and analyses on COVID-19 vaccination. The context was Uh, the Pfizer booster program. So this was an application by Pfizer to broadly have boosters across the population. They were going for the entire adult population. And I'll tell you, the answer was the vote by the advisory panel was no. And it was overwhelmingly no. And I think one of the reasons why that was the case was the powerful analyses given by the presenters. So I wanted to give you uh, just a few audio snapshots of these presenters and what case they were made. You've spent a lot of time listening to me on America Out Loud, but I want you to hear the viewpoint of others with respect to vaccination and the evidence for or against this public health intervention, which looms so large now in the lives of all of us. Let's start with Dr. David Wiseman, who's a PhD regulatory science expert. He is a previous employee of Johnson & Johnson. He's been on the McCullough Report in the past. Let's listen to, let's listen well, to what he says. written comments. Uh, next slide B uh, for our disclosures, and next slide, slide C. Uh, with this Lancet paper by FDA vaccine officials, we find ourselves agreeing with them, but for different reasons. We have an unclear need with unclear motivation significant safety concerns, poor evidence of sustained boost efficacy, and wrong priorities. So while FDA and Pfizer can't agree about waning efficacy, let's go to the next slide, D. We saw recently CDC's apparently withholding, apparent withholding of key data from ACIP 
prior to recommending the Pfizer vaccine and revealing that the primary driver for approving Cominati was to overcome hesitancy through regulatory misdirection. We agree with others that this has become politicized. Next slide, E. Pfizer's booster evidence today is weak. They are, they are small studies in mostly younger subjects. They are short-term. There is no randomized control. There are no clinical outcome data, only serology. Inadequate safety given this is a gene therapy product. Where are the data from the 10,000 patient study? Next slide, F. If FDA cannot assure us of the safety of two doses, how can they assure us of three? We see strong signals for death, myocardial infarction, and coagulopathy that need transparent investigation. Next slide, G. We find three potential pools of vaccine-associated deaths. Note the second pool among vaccinees. Next slide, H. Daily cases in Israel increase upon booster rollout compared with the same period last year. Please note the correct rollout is July the 1st of the 130 uh, number. The, the Israel booster presented today has matching censoring bias seen in related studies, non-comparable populations, possible clustering bias, inadequate accounting for early vaccine effects, and a short follow-up in mainly older people. Next slide, I. Others show unexplained Israeli deaths lockstepping with booster rollout. Rollout. This looks like the second pool deaths we said before in vaccinees rejected by New England Journal of Medicine in February. Next slide, J. Other safety concerns not voiced in the label are revealed in studies funded offline by NIH for menstrual disorders. Next slide, K. And offline by CDC in a disturbing revelation of an urgent need to monitor safety in pregnancy. Put this in the label. Next slide, L. Long-term safety, no cancer studies were performed. Moderna said its vaccine was a gene therapy product. Why is the FDA not requiring five to 15 year cancer and other studies per their gene therapy guidance? Next slide, M. We propose the term PCOVs to describe the wide spectrum events being reported. Next slide, N. We are running out of options. Vaccine hesitancy won't be solved by bullying or coercion. Address safety, show convincing booster efficacy. Revisit per repurposed repurpose drugs. Next slide, O. We reverse the findings of flawed landmark studies that have misguided policy. Journals refuse to correct these defects, and Dr. Rubin's seat on this committee is a conflict. Next slide, P. This is what has to be done. Thank you very much. Well, you heard it very clearly. Uh, no randomized trial data for the vaccines, only antibody or serology data, no clinical outcomes, and then Dr. Wiseman makes a very compelling case that we have so many open issues on safety. How can we possibly move forward and uh, approve boosters? Now let's listen to former uh, White House public health advisor, Dr. Paul Alexander, who's a research scientist in Hamilton, Ontario. And Paul's been an outspoken uh, media personality on the COVID-19 pandemic uh, and his brief presentation about safety surveillance. The next speaker is Dr. Paul Alexander. Hi, thank you very much. I wanted to get into this by saying uh, my background is in evidence-based medicine, clinical epidemiologist, and um, I'm very interested in the uh, safety and efficacy of these vaccines. I'm following some very good presentations so far. Look, we want these vaccines to work <clears throat> as Americans and as global population. So I think the message has to be that we're not coming at the FDA or we're not coming at the CDC trying to raise issues and concerns. But here's the issue. 
we wanted to work. But when we look at the surveillance, when we look at the surveillance coming out of the VAERS right now, CDC, it captures 1% of 1% to 10% by our study of the published literature of the adverse events. And that is very suboptimal because it doesn't give a proper capture of the burden. So we really do not know what the adverse events and the deaths are. So we want proper safety monitoring boards. We want proper ethics committees following up on these vaccines. We are calling for critical event committees, but we do not seem to know whether they exist. So we want the FDA to get on top of these vaccine developers and the CDC and put this in place for the safety of, of Americans. And it's a simple issue. You are giving us vaccines, and this is what we have been clamoring for. If you have an investigation of a vaccine with 1,000 samples, you put 500 in each arm, and you follow that for one year, versus you have another study of 100,000 people, and you follow that for two months. And the safety events that we are looking for, the safety signals happens at about five to six months. How could that larger sample detect them? And that's the issue. We are calling for longer term studies, larger sample size, but longer term. We need the medium and long term studies to best assess the safety and efficacy, particularly safety, particularly when you're talking about putting these vaccines in our children's arms. We currently do not have the safety data. We actually do not. And for anyone at the CDC, anyone at the NIH and anyone at the FDA that claims so. That is being disingenuous to the public. You heard that very clearly. We simply don't have the safety data to put this forward to the public without proper uh, clinical event committee, data safety monitoring board, and all this traditional safety guardrails, as well as uh, we'd much rather have longer term follow-up Having two months of follow-up from the randomized trials with legacy variants is simply not sufficient. Next is Dr. Joseph Freeman, emergency room physician from New Orleans, Louisiana. My name is Dr. Joseph Freeman, no conflicts to declare. I'm an emergency physician educated at Cornell Medical School, a residency with Charity Hospital in New Orleans, and I've been working in this region since. Where I work, over 65% of the population are not vaccinated. I'm here today to ask for help for those working the front line to help us reduce vaccine hesitancy. For this, we need larger trials that demonstrate the vaccine reduced hospitalization without finding evidence of serious harm. I know many think the vaccine hesitants are dumb or just misinformed. That's not at all what I've seen. In fact, typically, independent of education level, the vaccine hesitant I've met in the ER are more familiar with vaccine studies and more aware of their own COVID risk than the vaccinated. Uh, Next slide, please. For example, many of my nurses have refused the vaccine, despite having seen COVID-19 cause more death and devastation than most people have. I ask them why refuse the vaccine. They tell me while they've seen the firsthand dangers of COVID in the elderly, the obese, diabetics, they think their risk is low. They're not wrong. Next slide, please. One nurse showed me this Oxford risk calculator. A 30-year-old female has about a one in 7,000 chance of catching COVID and being hospitalized over 90 days. She asked me, can I assure her that the studies found her risk of serious harm from the vaccine is lower than her risk of hospitalization? The truth is I can't. Our trials weren't big enough. They weren't big enough to identify the vaccines caused myocarditis, yet now we know they do. Next slide, please. 
A recent observational study suggests the risk of vaccine-induced myocarditis in young males is higher than their risk of hospitalization from COVID. Is this true? We don't know. It's based on observational data. To know it's not true, we need a large trial that proves the vaccines reduce hospitalization more than they cause myocarditis in this age group. Next slide, please. The former FDA commissioner said the original premise of the vaccine was to reduce death and hospitalization. And that was the data that came out of the initial clinical trials. Except, as you all know very well, and fortunately, unfortunately, so did my nurse, the initial clinical trials did not find a reduction in death or hospitalization, likely because they were inadequately powered. Yet the former commissioner is correct that the initial trials should have been powered to find a reduction in hospitalization. Next slide, please. We need your help on the front lines to stop vaccine hesitancy. Demand the booster trials are large enough to find a reduction in hospitalization. Without this data, we, the medical establishment, cannot confidently call out anti-COVID vaccine activists who publicly claim the vaccines harm more than they save, especially in the young and healthy. The fact that we do not have the clinical evidence to say these activists are wrong should terrify us all. Well, there you heard it. Uh, he's not against the vaccines at all. In fact, he wants ammunition to support vaccines, uh, but he believes that the, those who are vaccine hesitant are, uh, are very strongly justified in their views given the lack of high quality, large randomized trials, and particularly the trials that exist that do not show any clinical benefit, no reduction in hospitalization or death. Now let's listen to Mr. Steve Kirsch. Steve is uh, uh, a well-known activist in COVID-19 uh, awareness with respect to vaccine safety and efficacy. And uh, he's been on our show for three segments in the past, but let's see what Steve has to say to the US FDA. Hi, I'm Steve Kirsch. I'm executive director of the COVID-19 Early Treatment Fund. I have no conflicts. Uh, advance to slide number four with the elephant. I'm going to focus my remarks today on the elephant in the room that nobody likes to talk about, that the vaccines kill more people than they save. Today, we focus almost exclusively on COVID death saves and vaccine efficacy because we were led to believe that vaccines are perfectly safe. But this is simply not true. For example, there were four times as many heart attacks in the treatment group in the Pfizer six-month trial report. That wasn't bad luck. There shows heart attacks happen 71 times more often following these vaccines compared to any other vaccine. In all, 20 people died who got the drug, 14 died who got the placebo. Few people notice that. If the net all-cause mortality from the vaccines is negative, vaccines, boosters, and mandates are all nonsensical. This is the case today. Death rates. Um, uh, let's slide number seven, advance uh, to the number seven in lower part. This shows that the all-cause uh, death light rate in, uh, in three cases. Only the VAERS numbers are statistically significant, but the other numbers are troubling. Even if the vaccines had 100% protection, it still means we kill two people to save one life. Four experts did analyses using completely different non-US data sources, and all of them came up with approximately the same number of excess vaccine-related deaths, about 411 deaths per million doses. That translates into 150,000 people have died. You can see how alarming what Mr. Kirsch said uh, that there could be far more people have died after the vaccine that we that we have seen compared to the uh, VAERS, the Vaccine Diverse Event Reporting System. These numbers are staggering. It's clear from multiple analyses the vaccines cause more death 
then they actually save lives. Now let's listen to Kim Witzak, who's another uh, community activist who makes a wonderful point with respect to when we, when, when do we have uh, enough data? When do we have a compelling case uh, to apply a program to an entire population from a science perspective? My name is Kim Witzak with Woody Matters, a drug safety organization started after the death of my husband. I'm also on the board of directors of USA Patient Network and have no conflicts of interest. It seems we are here today to discuss Pfizer's application to redefine the meaning of fully vaccinated from two to three doses. From the beginning of the pandemic, the goalposts keep changing. It makes you wonder if the current vaccination strategy is working. When looking at the submitted data, it's just over 300 people with only 12 of them over age 65, the highest risk group, sufficient enough to warrant approval for boosters. If the FDA approves this, we will take what we've learned on just 300 people and then give it no, more like mandated to hundreds of millions of people. This is beyond preposterous. While I am no vaccinologist, it would seem logical that dose three would have an increase in immune response over two, four doses over three, five over four, and so on. At what point will enough be enough? At the end of the, end of the day, can we really vaccinate our way out? While boosters may be good for business, let's be real. These vaccine, um, MNRA vaccines were never designed to stop transmission or eradicate the virus. These vaccines are not the same as those being used to eradicate polio or smallpox. I have to wonder um, why we chose to go down the vaccine path first versus focusing on treating those with a COVID diagnosis before it was too late or ended up in the hospital or worse yet, dead. You can tell that she's taking uh, a stance that, wait a minute, you know, this is going to be applied to the entire country. In the end, the the um, FDA had decided with the panel's advice not to approve these broadly for the population, but they did suggest they should be used over age 65. And Ms. Witzak points out that there's only 12 patients in the entire data set that they considered over age 65. Really, 12 patients, and that's going to be enough to apply information from that small number of individuals to tens of millions of Americans. And now finally, let's um, hear from Dr. Peter Doshi, who's from the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy. He's also on the editorial board of the British Medical Journal. He is very well respected in the circles of science and, and pharmacology and pharmacovigilance. Uh, he's published multiple peer-reviewed papers on the COVID-19 vaccines, uh, and in no way is he thought to be an anti-vaxxer. Peter Doshi is as level as they come in academic medicine. Let's hear his words. Hi, I'm Peter Doshi, and thanks for the opportunity to speak. So hopefully you can see my title slide with my financial disclosure. For identification purposes, I'm on the faculty at the University of Maryland and an editor at the BMJ. I have no relevant conflicts of interest. Our next slide, please, which is labeled slide A. I want to start off by asking a question. Just what problem is this third dose aiming to solve? If we have a pandemic of the unvaccinated, as our public health officials have repeatedly stated, why would a, quote, fully vaccinated person need a third dose? Next slide B, please. The briefing document suggests the rationale for boosters is waning immunity, but the lowest vaccine efficacy figure mentioned is 87, 83.7%. And last month, FDA approved Pfizer's vaccine stating that efficacy against symptomatic COVID is 91%. 
Sure, a third dose might nudge up efficacy numbers, but so too might a fourth dose and a fifth dose. The thing is, the two-dose regimen efficacy numbers are already way higher than the 50% bar that FDA set in June last year for an approvable vaccine. Before contemplating the licensure of dose three, didn't FDA first require evidence that the two-dose regimen no longer meets the efficacy bar the agency just weeks ago said it met? If vaccine efficacy is now below 50%, let's see the data. Next slide C, please. Let's discuss safety. When discussions about a third dose began in July, CDC Deputy Director Dr. Jay Butler said it was vital to find out if the third dose increased adverse reactions, particularly severe ones. Unfortunately, we're still in the dark. Pfizer's booster application reports on just 329 people with no control data. Now there is a Pfizer ongoing placebo-controlled randomized trial of boosters in 10,000 people not discussed in the briefing document. But this trial is unlikely to satisfactorily characterize booster safety. First, the trial is too small and the enrollment limited to healthy participants. Second, we really need to know how safe boosters are in people who already had bad reactions to dose one or two. But such people are obviously less likely to volunteer to participate in this trial. So we won't have the data to answer the question. Yet if the booster is approved, such people will surely be mandated to receive a third. Uh, dose. Final slide D, please. I'll end with a question. Last week, three medical licensing boards said that they could revoke doctors' medical licenses for providing COVID vaccine misinformation. I'm worried about the chilling effect here. There are clearly many remaining unknowns, and science is all about probing unknowns. But in the present supercharged climate, and I'll point out that multiple members of this committee are certified by these boards, I want to ask FDA. What is FDA doing to ensure that those advising it are able to speak freely without fear of reprisal? Thank you for your attention. Well, you heard it there. I mean, this uh, giant issue of can anybody really speak out and can anybody give their independent analysis or thoughts publicly or to the FDA? These are going to be recorded and memorialized in minutes. And will some of the clinicians who presented, are they going to be uh, accused of misinformation versus information and who decides this is a chilling way to finish the testimony that is are we at the precipice of complete and total suppression of scientific information as the machinery of our public health agencies and our regulatory agencies grinds on in this unstoppable uh, continued progression of efforts to get a needle in every arm at all costs, despite the data, despite the harms that's going on to the public. Really, can anything stop this machine of mass vaccination, something the public, at least half the public, clearly doesn't want? And the points that several of the presenters made is that this isn't about approval of the boosters. This is about a decision that's gonna be approval and, and a conditional uh, go-ahead for continued mass vaccination on a regular basis. Many people thought, gosh, if I could just get through this one shot 
if I could just get through uh, this two shots of messenger RNA, I'm done. That there's some type of social contract that I can go on with my job, I can go on with school, I can go on with my life. You know, boosters looming over the population says, no, no, you can't go on. In fact, you can only go on until the next shot. The next shot that we don't know if it works, we don't have any randomized trial data, we don't know it's safe, and the scientists are telling you that this is gene transfer technology, this is continued genetic loading of the human body with the uh, genetic material that codes for the production of the Wuhan spike protein that's on the spicule on the ball of the virus, which is known to be dangerous, which is known to be uh, pathogenic and causing damage to red blood cells blood clotting, injuring the organs, particularly the brain, the heart, the immune system, and the hematologic system. We know that it causes symptoms. There's no doubt about it. And some individuals, the symptoms are so severe, fever, low blood pressure, difficulty breathing, weakness, uh, that in our seniors, particularly our seniors, these immediate symptoms can be fatal. And if they've been fatal in up to, as Mr. Kirsch has testified, potentially 150,000 Americans. That is a stunning revelation. I can't think of anything in terms of historic importance of what a population is actually doing to itself right now at the end of a needle uh, injected with brand new technology, liposomal uh, adenoviral DNA with Johnson & Johnson or liposomal messenger RNA with Pfizer and Moderna. Well, my guest this week is Dr. Jessica Rose. Jessica is an epidemiologist, but who trained in virology. Her credentials are uh, beyond uh, reproach. And Jessica's been invite invited on the show for a long segment because she also testified at the US FDA and she has the data. She has the data from the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. She'll go through it uh, carefully and let you as the listener decide uh, how these vaccines um, are being utilized. Have you decide, are the vaccines sufficiently safe for you to take in your body for one shot, two shots, or potentially boosters on a regular basis? My experience is that so many of my patients have taken uh, the shots They've had either Pfizer, Moderna, two shots, or Johnson & Johnson, one shot, and they had a sore arm, they had some symptoms, and they, uh, after that, felt perfectly fine. So the question is now, six or nine months later, is that okay? Is it no harm, no foul? Or are we gonna run into trouble with more shots in the future? I'm a hopeful doctor, and I've told my patients I don't wanna create undue concern. I think, I honestly think, one or two shots, no systematic uh, uh, effects, no uh, organ injury syndromes, I think they're fine. Honestly, the body has probably handled these vaccines just fine. They may not have provided any benefit, uh, but no long-term harm. But if we keep injecting boosters uh, with each additional shot, there's typically a step up in side effects and risk 80-fold or more, I'm generally concerned. So let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. You know, Healthy Cell is a terrific lineup of products. They have products that are pill-free, gel-packed vitamins. Uh, looking for better sleep, focus, and energy? Check out Healthy Cell, the leading innovator in nutritional supplements for cell health. Healthy Cell has a product that helps REM sleep, 
helps you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cells REM Sleep Supplement. The only sleep supplement that's designed to support all stages of sleep. And boy, is it needed now during all the stress of the COVID-19 pandemic. So go to HealthyCell.com and use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, OUTLOUD, for a 20% off your first order of any product from Healthy Cell. I use them every day. I believe in them. And you should too. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Each of us is born with 30 trillion cells that make us. These cells determine how we feel, perform, sleep, focus, and how long we live. And to live our best life, all we have to do is feed our cells. But most food and supplements don't reach our cells, keeping us from reaching our full potential. Make every cell count with Healthy Cell. Founded with a mission to empower people to take control of their own health at the most fundamental level, Dr. Vincent Jampapa, world-renowned cell researcher and medical doctor, created supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. And that's HealthyCell.com. H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. AmericaOutloud.com Simply put, we're patriots who believe in Ronald Reagan's vision of a shining city on a hill. From sea to shining sea, you can listen in on iHeartRadio. Our free apps are on Apple, Android, or Alexa or our world-class media player. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the show Dr. Jessica Rose. Dr. Rose received her bachelor's in science in applied mathematics and completed her master's of science in immunology at Memorial University of Newfoundland, Canada. She completed her PhD in computational biology at Bar Ilan University and then went on to do a postdoctoral fellowship at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem in molecular biology. Dr. Rose is a Canadian scientist who's been very influential in helping the world understand uh, vaccine safety and the application of principles in epidemiology and molecular biology to the COVID-19 vaccines. And we have a critical, this is probably one of the most important interviews I've had on the show so far, because Dr. Rose has just testified at the US FDA meetings on September 17th concerning uh, COVID-19 vaccine boosters for the general population. Dr. Rose, welcome to the McCullough Report. Hi, I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Give us the backdrop on your uh, publications uh, that were have been now heavily cited on, co- on the VAERS system and what transpired at the meeting from your perspective. Well, I have two. Uh, well, one publication is published, and this was my first um, a VAERS data analysis, which was very general. It was published back in May, and it was a report on 
the atypical number of adverse events that have been reported to VAERS in the context of the COVID-19 products. And it had a little bit of prediction there um, pertaining to grouped adverse events such as cardiovascular, immunological, and uh, neurological adverse events that had been reported. In other words, there was a, uh, it looked like an exponential growth curve of, of these grouped adverse events that were being reported. Um, and I have another publication, which is days away from surfacing for distribution, uh, which explores the pharmacovigilance of VAERS. Uh, it is a pharmacovigilance tool, which was built by the FDA and the CDC about 30 years ago. And it's designed to, um, to warn uh, of emerging safety signals. So the paper basically investigates uh, whether it can be used that way and if it is being used in that way. So um, that's the, the paper that's about to be launched. And pertaining to the FDA meeting, I, I had three minutes to speak and I presented three slides, which basically summarized what the first paper found was this very atypical uh, number of adverse events reported in the context of COVID products when you compare them to 10 to 30 years uh, of previous vaccines. Um, there's, there's absolutely no comparison. And I also explored the cardiovascular, the immunological and neurological uh, reporting, which is completely atypical as well. And I, I kind of uh, mentioned the, the possibility of the COVID vaccine injectable products driving the emergence of variants as a potential um, outcome of this if we keep putting so-called booster shots into people. So, so that summarizes uh, what I did. Many have uh, made the case that causality is the principal thing that we need to focus on now. I think everybody knows after the vaccine, the data show just a, a skyrocketing of deaths and these non-fatal injury syndromes, cardiac, neurologic, immunologic, and hematologic. And in fact, the FDA and other regulatory bodies have official warnings for myocarditis and warnings for venous thrombosis and neurologic syndromes such as Guillain-Barre syndrome. But the central issue is, does the vaccine actually cause these or has there been such a large number of people vaccinated that we're just seeing a background rate of these events? So explain to our audience what the criteria for causality that a, a, an epidemiologist or a scientist would use to uh, make the case that the vaccine is in fact causing these injuries and deaths. Right, so causality is notoriously difficult to prove in biological systems. Um, so it's been established uh, using something called the Bradford Hill criteria that this is the best way to provide evidence for, uh, of causation in a biological system or an epidemiological situation. Um, and these, are, these involve up to 10 separate criteria that once you've, you've shown evidence that support each one, then you can say you have a very 
very strong evidence for causality in a system. One of these is, uh, and the, the most important, of course, because without this, you, you cannot claim causality at all, is temporality. So one thing must precede the other thing in a causal relationship. Uh, this thing happened because of the other thing. So interestingly, uh, as part of my first publication, I, I plotted the, the difference in days between the injection dates and the onset dates against the percentage of the adverse events reported. And I, 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 I looked at everything. I looked at deaths. I looked at ER visits. I looked at hospitalizations, all the grouped categories, the, the ologies, for example. And what I found was that in most cases, 50% uh, of the reports occurred within 24 to say 36 hours of the injection. Now, this isn't a proof positive, but it's very, very strong evidence. If anybody who wasn't completely convincing themselves that there's absolutely no possible way that an injected substance could cause something bad to happen to a person, if you assumed that, then you would have to explain using some kind of statistical methods or, or some kind of methodology why we're seeing that. Why are we seeing half of all the reports being made in such close temporal proximity to the injection date? So the onus is on the people who claim there is no causality to, to counter um, prove what's being, what's evident in the data, uh, first of all. So among all the other criteria, I have investigated these and that they are satisfied. So again, the argument falls back on the, on the individuals who are claiming that it's impossible that there's a causative effect. And it doesn't matter to those people who are listening that it's posted on their on the VAERS website that you can't infer causality because those are words. And what we're looking at is data and data don't lie, people lie. So well, that, you, that was you my could, hat. You could make the case that in the end, everybody has to come to their own conclusion and that we what we do in uh, clinical medicine and epidemiology and biostatistics is we use inferential thinking. That is, we have to draw an inference based on what we see. And so, you know, I've made the case that, uh, you know, from the biology of these vaccines, the vaccines do cause the cells to produce the spike protein. No one disputes that. The spike protein uh, is known to be damaging to the human body. No one disputes that. So we have a dangerous mechanism of action. You've proven, I think beyond a shadow of a doubt, that there is a temporal association, not only with the non-fatal injuries, but also the fatality. So it's internally consistent. And then yes. if, we move, if we move to external consistency is, do we see it in another database separate from theirs? Uh, the exact same relationships are seen in the yellow card system, for instance, in the UK and the uterus system in the uh, European Union. So we have external consistency. Now, do we have a magnitude of association? And the answer is yes, compared to not being exposed to the vaccine, these rates in terms of exposure, un exposed, unexposed are in the stratosphere. So um, we have, uh, I think, in what you've made is a compelling case that the vaccines are causing these injuries and deaths. 
And if that's the case, then uh, if we accept that, then we just have to weigh out uh, what are the relative uh, risks and benefits. If we accept the fatal and non-fatal injuries of the vaccine, uh, are they doing more good for a person than just taking their chances with the COVID-19 respiratory infection? So what took place uh, at the FDA meetings that you recall and, and what's your viewpoint on that? Well, I, I think it's absolutely up to the individuals uh, to make their own risk-benefit analysis. And I can tell you, uh, this, this isn't about the FDA meeting. This is about a, a movie that came out of Israel recently called Testimonials. And it's a fantastic documentary, uh, which basically is a, a large number of people who have been injured and they know that they've been injured because they know their bodies. You, you, everybody has to watch this because it'll help you uh, make a decision for yourself whether or not um, these things that we're talking about are real. And a number of people, I very specifically remember this in the movie said, if I'd known that this was going to happen to me within a few days of these shots, I never would have done it. And I would prefer to have COVID. So this all boils down to the informed consent issue and the lack thereof on this subject. People need to know, first of all, that there is a risk. Even, even if you think it's minimal, that's your decision to make. Okay, there are only this, this percentage of people who have been injected who are getting myocarditis. I'm not a 17-year-old boy, so I don't think I'm going to have a problem. I'm going to decide to do this because I'm afraid of COVID that much. That's, that's the process that someone needs to go through, but you can't go through that unless you have certain amounts of information, which we all know are being suppressed. So I'm not sure that answered the question, but... Uh, you know, my view on this is that um, unless we get uh, transparency of the safety data and understand risk prediction, what I want to know as a doctor is who is in a category where they are just not going to have these problems. Meaning, is there a safe category that for sure, if they took the vaccine, right. maybe they get a benefit and there's no chance of harm? And then who is absolutely a setup? for harm. And because there's no transparency, I'm left with using my clinical judgment. Let me give you an example. If I have somebody with prior heart disease, congenital heart disease, valvular heart disease, heart, uh, coronary heart disease, cardiomyopathy, prior myocarditis, my clinical intuition tells me, watch out because they're already, they're already a setup. If they do sustain myocarditis as a complication, they're going to have a worsened outcomes because they're starting from behind. The same thing with neurologic syndromes. If I have a patient with a prior stroke, uh, multiple sclerosis, if they, already have, if they already have early dementia, if they already have a setback or a deficit and they do get a neurologic injury, now the, the final uh, product of that, the final um, disease state is going to be worse. The same thing is true. And there is support from this uh, in the literature on blood disorders. If someone has thrombocytopenia, if someone has um, uh, 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 fibrosis of the bone marrow, myodysplastic syndromes, if people have various blood disorders, then they are um, at increased risk. It makes a lot of sense for some of these hematologic syndromes. But the, the frustrating thing is that the regulatory authorities hold all the data and they 
uh, have provided no analyses to us uh, with that degree of granularity. And I'll say one final thing. I want your opinion on this. Uh, I personally have filled out the VAERS forms as a doctor, which I am supposed to do. And I do it very carefully because it's under the threat of federal fines and, and imprisonment if I falsify the forms. But I have to tell you, I know the forms well, and I've done them electronically. I've also done them on PDF. The one checkbox they do not have on the form, and I can tell you they're not collecting this, is whether or not someone's been COVID recovered. So mm-hmm. if someone has previously had COVID, did they go ahead and take the vaccine? What's your view on this in terms of COVID recovered, taking the vaccine, and is this a setup for vaccine injury? I would say yes. And it's also absolutely it's atrocious and it's it's the best sign for anybody who who either knows or doesn't know that this whole thing is it, it, it's it's ridiculous. I can't get my head around it. I mean, why would you why would you subsequent to a natural disease course with establishment of long-term protection in the form of antibodies and T cells? Why would you even think once about a vaccine, if you actually know what a vaccine is designed for, which is, it's a low level infection of say a dangerous pathogen that you you pass without incident, without symptoms, so that when you meet the pathogen in nature, the wild type version or variant, you are protected. I mean, it goes against the whole concept. It goes against the narrative itself. It doesn't make sense to me. Um, so yeah, I, I uh, I absolutely think that it's causing more harm than good. Um, And Jessica, we are up to six studies now that I'm aware of. I've previously summarized three of them on the McCullough Report uh, website, but now there's three more. So now we have six Mm -hmm. studies showing uh, that when someone needlessly takes the vaccine who's COVID recovered, there's a higher rate of injuries, including hospitalizations. I think the million dollar question is, of all these deaths that have accumulated around the world after the vaccine, are those actually indeed in patients who are COVID recovered? Is there something called pathogenic priming? Did the previous infection prime the body? And when they took the vaccine, now they made either uh, an excessive amount of spike protein, a more uh, a higher level of the spike protein, or did they have an immunologic response or a hematologic or cardiovascular response to it that um, has created such an injury that it basically results in death. Right. Well, excellent. You know, that that's what I think is happening. The pathogenic priming uh, idea is, is probably what we're seeing here. So um, I just want to backtrack to the, the previous idea, just, just so that the listeners know this, because nobody's talking about this yet. The VAERS data is starting to reveal slowly but surely that cancer rates are starting to go up in the injected people as well. This goes for new cancers, like blood cancers, and it goes for um, re-emergence of dormant cancers. So uh, everybody knows that cancer is a huge problem in the human population right now. So if you or someone you know uh, is, is 
you know, suffering from this, this should definitely be part of your risk benefit analysis. We don't have personalized medicine to the degree that we, we might want to right now. We can't know what your immune state is, for example, when you inject yourself and they're not testing for antibodies prior to injecting. So it's very, very, very important that everybody knows these things prior to, to going through with this, because again, the risks are really there and we can't predict. It's just like you said, Peter, like we can't predict at this point really like who this is going to hurt more that or less. We have good ideas, but we don't know yet. So this has to be factored in. You know, to follow those comments in uh, United States, for sure, the breakdown of deaths in general is about 40% of people die of heart disease, 40% die of cancer and 20% die of other causes. And interestingly, with the vaccines, we have the official warning on myocarditis from the US FDA. We certainly have rates of myocardial infarction, stroke, um, and deaths. And then a recent report from Germany uh, with the first series of autopsies of people who have died after the vaccines has just been released in a conference in German and parts of it are being translated in English. And just looking at the findings, including the histopathology slides, I've been struck with how many of these deaths are cardiovascular deaths, that in fact, it looks like cardiac injury as part of the causal pathway to death. We do know from the VAERS data that unfortunately, those who are dying with the vaccines are the seniors that there is an age gradation to this, just like there is with the natural respiratory infection, that the seniors, while they're, they're at the highest risk of dying of COVID-19 respiratory infection, they're also at the highest risk of dying after the vaccine. That there is a connection between the spike protein and the cancers from a biologic perspective. And it's been shown that the spike protein interacts with, in an unfavorable and potentially dangerous way with two cancer-related genes. One's called the P53 tumor suppressor mm-hmm. gene, and the other one's called the BRCA gene that's related mm-hmm. to breast and female gynecologic cancers. Here's the important point. When the vaccine is injected, we know there are lipid nanoparticles and messenger RNA or adenoviral DNA, but it can't go to every cell. There must be a mosaic of cells that are hit. Each person's probably different. And that with one or two injections, there's been a different mosaic or a different spread of the vaccine. The vaccine is taken up into each cell, but the messenger RNA may actually be passed from cell to cell through little packets called microsomes. Uh, it looks like that's uh, very possible. And then it's very possible during given the, du- the durability of the messenger RNA that's passed from a parent cell to a daughter cell during cell division. Uh, Dr. Um, Uh, Stephanie Senoff and Dr. Anthony Karagakoulos are working feverishly on this right now. And I've been a part of those work groups and I've been convinced at uh, what a long duration that these uh, vaccines may have. And then at the Rome conference this month earlier, Dr. Bruce Patterson, I think really opened our eyes with the finding that after the natural infection, the spike protein, in fact, the S1 segment of the spike protein can be found in human monocytes up to 15 months after the natural infection. 
So the natural infection must have such an incredible spray of spike protein in the human body that our cells, our macrophages and monocytes must be scavenging this out of the body, trying to cleanse the body of spike protein for a long time afterwards. And Dr. Patterson hypothesized that this could be the pathogenesis of the long COVID syndrome. But one of the things I thought of is, wait a minute, the vaccines are also causing the body to produce spike protein for an undisclosed a duration and intensity of time. And if we keep vaccinating dose after dose after dose, including subsequent boosters, uh, but we are potentially loading the body with spike protein. If the natural infection can create the presence of spike protein for 15 months, what can one, two, three, four, five, six shots of the vaccines cause in the body? And with cancer, we know it's all about exposure over time. And so if we get enough exposure over time, it is uh, biologically plausible that the vaccines could be oncogenic. Absolutely. And this is cumulative people. Uh, well, it looks like it can be cumulative in terms of dose, 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 dose. Um, if you think about it, I mean, it's, it's kind of logical that, that I, I look at it this way. I think the first, uh, dose that affects people negatively because it's affecting a lot of people negatively is is the first punch. Let's look at my let's talk about myocarditis. I'm not a cardiologist, but <laughs> um, it's it's very interesting if you look at dose data. If you look at people who had two doses, how different the magnitude of reporting of myocarditis is between dose one and dose two. It's way higher. It's like six times higher on dose two. So it kind of looks like there's an initial injury perhaps that maybe wasn't reported as much because if you're a, a 16 or a 15 year old boy and you're having chest pain or maybe you can't uh, you can't breathe right one day you're probably going to you're not going to think you're having a heart problem because you're a little boy so that's just my theory but on the second shot perhaps the the damage being done is much more severe so that it can't go unnoticed. And that's why we're seeing an increase in reporting. This is all just an idea, but it seems to me that if you if you keep injecting yourself with something that is pathogenic, then it, it, there is going to be some kind of not only biocumulative effect, but there's gonna be a cumulative effect in terms of clinical symptoms. So those are just my thoughts. You know, it's been my observation that since the release of the very first vaccine in the United States, it was Pfizer in December of 2020, that there's really been a mushrooming of information that's come out on the vaccines that has been of great concern. Have you found any lead on information that's been a good, a surprising good finding on the vaccines? Wow. No one's asked me that before. Um, no. And I mean, if you look at uh, one of the most injected places on earth, which is Israel right now, and you've looked at our world in data or the Ministry of Health data, you'll notice that the majority of people who are considered cases right now and hospitalized are doubly injected folks. So, I mean, in terms of virology or vaccinology, that to me sounds a little bit like a vaccine failure. Um, so if you, if anybody doesn't know what a vaccine is, vaccines are meant to like do a few things like prevent transmission, 
um, provide protective immunity. These are the two big ones, okay? So if your product that you're calling a vaccine are not providing either of those things, then it's, it's not really doing what it's meant to do. So to answer the question, no, not really. Um, I haven't heard a single person. Uh, in other words, I, I don't even know anecdotal. <laughs> I don't even have anecdotal evidence of benefit. Um, now, that's just my personal opinion. But uh, so I think this is an important observation that, yeah. you know, I'm talking to one of the leading scientists in the world who is incredibly qualified uh, and someone who doesn't have a stake in this game. You know, I'm a doctor. I'm personally seeing these patients. So I could be uh, wrapped up in uh, COVID-19 illness and vaccine injury. But Dr. Rose is a scientist just looking at the data. She doesn't have uh, a stake in this uh, in any way, shape, or form. And I can tell you her assessment that there's been nothing good that's come out on the vaccines. And since the release, there has been a mushroom cloud, a nuclear cloud of um, concerning findings, bad findings, deaths and injuries that have happened to people, failure to prevent transmission, failure to control the outbreak. And, and honestly, from my perspective, a promotion of uh, hyperdominant uh, variants that are resistant to the vaccines. These are all bad things for the COVID-19 vaccine program, uh, of, yes. which, of which many have called to just go ahead and pause or shut down the program. Dr. Rose, do you have any final comments for our audience? Yeah, um, I, I really, just to spin off what you just said, this isn't just about, well, first of all, there's the thing that really annoys me about all this is that it, it's such a diversion away from good stuff, good research, good doctoring, ethics, morals. It's such a diversion away from that, those things. And it's amazing to me that so many people are on the, the what's the word, the narrative train without thinking or listening closely enough to, to people who really don't have anything to gain by speaking about this. I mean, I, I'm nobody. I'm just a person who sits on my floor in front of my computer and looks at data. And I'm just telling everyone what I'm seeing. You know, I, I have no financial gain. I have no motives. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a little bit annoying to me that instead of early treatment that we know is effective being used, promoted, and even before that, I mean, why don't we just promote vitamin D? Because we all know that lots of the people, if not all of them who are dying from COVID are vitamin D deficient. Let's just pump the population full of vitamin Z, T, D, and zinc, and C. And if things get bad, we use early treatment. I mean, we have the solutions to end this. And that's the part that's annoying to me, this suppression of, of information. I mean, like, what are we? Are we, are we, are we book burning now? Like, anyway, those are my final thoughts, just to be a little more human about this. <laughs> well, I'll let that be the last word, Dr. Rose. Thank you for joining us on the McCullough Report. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy about it. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Thank you.